Heavenly Father, we come before you now this evening. And as we even say that, as we pray together and come before your presence, we all come the same in one way and yet totally different in another way. We come the same because it's the same Savior that grants us access. It's the same Lord that we approach. There is one God, one body. And so we're all the same at the foot of the cross. Yet we come differently in that we've come from different situations today. Some through great hardship and struggle things that have been plaguing and gnawing at the soul. Thoughts about the future and wondering if we're going to make it. Others, Lord, a very, very different kind of circumstance. Busy, but life is good. Or perhaps a vacation where there's leisure involved. Different circumstances, you know them all. And so we're quite comfortable and confident that we can come before you who can deal and speak and move according to the needs that we possess. You can meet them all, Lord. You are sufficient. And Father, we pray that as we consider this chapter tonight, this chapter of mourning, that we would understand why and we would even be motivated, Lord, to seek to please you in such a way that there be transformation in our lives. You put this chapter in here for a reason. It's one of the great chapters of the Bible. We pray we'd be nourished and fed, that we'd apply our minds to understand and our hearts to respond and our lives to walk in your ways. In Jesus' name. Amen. Nehemiah, the ninth chapter. Several chapters in the Bible, several books have great chapter nines. Daniel chapter nine, epic. Ezra chapter nine, outstanding. Nehemiah chapter nine, right up there. Several weeks ago, I was invited to San Diego to speak at a thing they called Spirit West Coast, which was a music festival of sorts. Different bands were playing, and they wanted a speaker, so they thought they'd have me speak. And so they wanted me to share the gospel and call people to faith in Christ, which we did. And it was a fun, wonderful, very rewarding experience. Then a few weeks after that, I spoke in Riverside at my friend Greg Laurie's Sunday services and did the same thing at the final service, called people forward to respond, and we saw a great number. Then a week after that, I was in Albuquerque and did the same thing at the Saturday night service and the three morning services. So I've seen in the last month and a half hundreds of people make decisions to follow Christ, and I notice as people come forward or raise the hand that oftentimes there is, not always, and it's not of necessity that it has to be this way, but quite frequently there will be an emotional response during that moment. There'll be tears that are shed. And um, you, you could have the person who has it all together, you know, dressed to the hilt even, and then they come forward to receive Christ and boom, they let loose. They just lose it. And, uh, It's wonderful to see that. Uh, It's appropriate. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Or if you wanted to put it in our vernacular, happy are the unhappy. For they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. Chapter 9 of Nehemiah. It's a long chapter. But it's like that. It's It's a chapter of emotional response to what God is doing in their midst. Now, as we read it, a fair warning. It doesn't sound like a typical worship service. Number one, it's really long. And we'll find out why it was long. They wouldn't tolerate anything less. And number two, it's filled with cries of confession. 
It is uh, essentially a record of repentance. That's what chapter 9 is. It is a journal, a record of mourning, of fasting, of crying out to God, of repentance, because they recognize they have offended a holy God. They haven't had that recognition before. They've gone to the temple. They've kept sacrifices. They even kept the feast. But suddenly there's this national recognition that we are in the presence of a holy God who's given us his word, and there is a response to that that is very, very emotional. Typically, summer camps are the place that people repent when you're young. You go to high school camps, and it's the end of the summer, and so you hear a message, and you throw the pine cone in the fire, and everybody stands around, and, Kumbaya, my Lord. And it's the place to repent for a week. Right? It's the end of the summer, so you've had your fun all summer, and school's next week, and yeah, I better really get right with God. So you have that weekend to do it. Now, I'm not trying to knock that, but typically it is like that for some. There was a, a meeting in a church, a testimony meeting, where people were getting up and they were sharing their testimonies, and one guy stood up and he made a public confession. He says, you know, I, I smoke two packs of cigarettes a day and I'm going to quit. And another guy stood up, emboldened by the first testimony, he said, you know, I, I probably down two, two six-packs a day and I'm going to quit. Another fellow stood up and he said, you know, I, I, I've been swearing a lot. I, I use the wrong words a lot and I'm going to quit. And so this kind of went on and one elderly frail lady kind of caught up in the enthusiasm of this stood up and she goes, I don't do anything and I'm going to quit. <laughs> the people of Israel hadn't realized that they had done anything up until a couple weeks before this. It's the seventh month and it's the 24th day of the seventh month, as we're going to read. But some things have been happening the last couple of weeks that get them on this track where they realize, I've got to quit. We've got to stop what we're doing. This is a revival. It truly is a revival. You've heard the word before. And I just want to tell you that revival isn't something churches hang up in terms of a sign that says revival this week, 7 to 9 p.m. That's not a revival. That's a sign. A revival is where something dying or dormant comes back to life. First of all, if you admit that you need revival, you're admitting something is dying. There's nothing wrong with admitting that. In fact, you may want to evaluate your life. I may want to evaluate my life tonight and compare that to what it was like a year ago. Or let's go all the way back to the first night or day you made a commitment to Jesus Christ. And you remember the passion, the fervor, the zeal, the commitment. And look at your life now and make some comparisons. Is there revival that is needed at certain areas of your life? Well, we're reading of a national renewal, a national revival. It's evidenced by the change in the entire community. Everybody's swept up in this. And i got to believe, this is why Nehemiah came to Jerusalem. i got to believe that this is why the Lord laid on his heart to talk to Artaxerxes to get permission to take the long journey and to come to this city. It wasn't so that he could build walls and say, what a wonderful building we have. It wasn't so that he could provide national political security or get the people together as a team and build unity. It really was for this spiritual national revival. This is their declaration of dependence upon God. If you look at chapter 9, there's a lot of verses, as I said, so we're not going to be going into depth in all 38 verses, all right? Um, what we're going to do is read them, and because this was a corporate national kind of a thing where the people were standing, by the way, for half a day, as you'll see, uh, we're going to read this chapter standing together. So I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to ask Frank to come up. And uh, I'm going to start this prayer that is a corporate prayer in verse 5. And I'm going to ask you to read with me or read out loud with Frank verse 6. 
So I'm going to read verse 5 and the odd-numbered verses. You're going to read verse 6 and the odd-numbered verses after it. But let's start at the beginning. And then we'll start reading together in verse 5. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth, with dust on their heads. Then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for one-fourth of the day, and for another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. Then Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Hanani. You've heard of Bani and Clyde. This is the Hebrew version. <laughs> Bani and Hanani stood on the stairs of the Levites and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Hodijah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Thou alone art the Lord. Thou hast made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. Thou dost give life to all of them, and the heavenly hosts bow down before thee. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. And thou didst find his heart faithful before thee and didst make a covenant with him to give him the land of Canaanite and of the Hittite and the Amorite, of the Perizzite, the Jebusite and the Girgashite to give it to his descendants. And thou hast fulfilled thy promise, for thou art righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs, signs and, and wonders, wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and against all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted proudly against them. So you made a name for yourself, as it is this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. And their persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone into mighty waters. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. You came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst and told them to go and to possess the land which you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks, and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them, but they hardened their necks. And in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Even when they made a molded calf for themselves and said, This is our God, they brought you up out of Egypt and worked provocations. Yet in your manifold mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness, the pillar of the cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way they should go. You also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. 
Moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, the land of the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You also multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and brought them into the land which you told their fathers to go in and possess. So the people went in and possessed the land. You subdued the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land, that they might do with them as they wished. And they took strong cities and a rich land and possessed houses full of all goods, cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and grew fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs, and killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourself, and they worked great provocations. Therefore, you delivered them into the hand of their enemies who oppressed them. And in the time of trouble, when they cried out to you, you heard from heaven, and according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they again did evil before you. Therefore, you left them in the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And testified against them that you might bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and would not hear. Yet for many years you had patience with them and testified against them by your spirit in your prophets. Yet they would not listen. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them. For you are God, gracious and merciful. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty and awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy, do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us. Our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers and on all your people, for the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. However, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. Neither our kings nor our princes, our priests nor our fathers have kept your law, nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies, which you testified against them. For they have not served you in their kingdom, or in the many good things that you gave them, or in the large and rich land which you set before them, nor did they turn from their wicked works. Here we are, servants today, and the land you gave to our fathers, to eat its fruit and its bounty. Here we are, servants in it. And it yields much increase to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. Also, they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. And because of all of this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. Good job. Have a seat. The chapter can be divided into two easy sections. Number one, the preparation of the people. That is, they get together. Remember, they're standing in front of the court of the street at that southeast section of Jerusalem known as the Water Gate. Not the hotel, not the scandal. This is the Watergate Revival. This is down in that area of Jerusalem that had been newly built by the water source itself, the Gihon Spring. So, the preparation of the people... And then second, the prayer of penitence. By the way, this is the longest recorded prayer in all of the Bible. And we just read it together. Now keep something in mind, again. It is the seventh month, and three notable things happen in the Jewish calendar in the seventh month. First day is the new year, Rosh Hashanah. Then there is the Feast of Tabernacles. First of all, the Feast of Trumpets. 
There is the Feast of Tabernacles. There is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. All of those things are in the seventh month. According to chapter 8, verse 2, all of the people assembled together in that court at the water gate, men and women, and all those children who had understanding of what would be read by Nehemiah and Ezra. So all of the people gathered in verse 2 of chapter 8. On the next day, the leaders came back reassembling. They wanted to hear more. Their hearts were touched. They wanted to know more of the mind and heart and will of God. The people started mourning because of what they heard. They started crying. And if you remember last week, the leaders came to them and said, No, no, this isn't a day to be mourning. The joy of the Lord is your strength. This is the seventh month. It's the festival month. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. So they were told not to be sorrowful, but to be joyful. So that from the 15th day of the seventh month to the 22nd day, an eight-day period, the children of Israel kept the Feast of Tabernacles. There was also a footnote that were given by Nehemiah in chapter 8. They hadn't kept the Feast of Tabernacles like that since the days of Joshua. So for a thousand years, the people of Israel failed to keep the Feast of Tabernacles like that. Notice I keep saying like that. They kept the Feast of Tabernacles. And can you see a parallel? They were spiritual. They were religious. They went to church. They went to the temple. They kept the feast. They would have said, oh, yes, I know what day it is on the calendar. It's the Sabbath day, and it's the Feast of Tabernacles day. But they hadn't kept it like that. Like that meaning they hadn't lived in booths for seven days from the 15th to the 22nd day as the law told them to do. Their hearts really weren't touched. They, they were mildly religious. They were inoculated with just enough religion to make them immune from the real thing. Something happened. What happened is they heard something they hadn't heard in a long time. Some of them never heard it before, and that was just the reading of the law. The books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. As these things were being read, the people realized, boy, we have fallen a long way from those standards. We have not kept those laws and their hearts started getting very emotional. The leaders did say, now's not the time to sorrow, now's the time to joy. But now it's the 24th day, as we read in chapter 9. It's a couple days after the Feast of Tabernacles has ended. It's been a few weeks since they first heard that Bible study message in the books of the law. And they're still sensitized in their hearts. You know, it is amazing to me that it wasn't even a sermon preached. There weren't three or four points. There wasn't statistics. There was no poem. There was no um, special entertainer that day. There was no special program. There were no video clips. It was just the Bible being read. And it wasn't like Matthew being read. It wasn't the Psalms being read. It is Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy read, and people went, wow. And they are so touched, that's why I say this is true revival, because it is undergirded and birthed by the word of God. The people's hearts are touched. What do they do? Well, we're told, look at chapter 9, these first couple of verses. They come in fasting. This is a form of self-mortification, putting to death the desires of the flesh. I don't know if you've ever tried fasting, but let me just tell you, it ain't easy. It's tough to do. Whether they did it for just one day or for several days, just not eating any food for one day is very difficult, let alone several days for this reason. But notice fasting, sackcloth. We know what sackcloth is. You know what a sack of potatoes look like. It's that kind of cloth, that coarse, rough cloth meant to make a person feel uncomfortable. And then they put dirt on their heads. Remember Job said... Um, can't remember the exact text. I've heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself in dust and ashes he put on his head. So the idea is 
I am mourning over my sin. I am in deep distress. These were the, the symbols of a deep, emotional, heartfelt repentance. Notice that for three hours they stood as the scriptures were being read. Remember the first day, um, back in chapter 8, they stood for most of the day. But for a fourth of the day, that's three hours, they stood as the scripture was being read. They wanted more. They wanted to know the mind of God. They wanted to know more of the will of God, the heart of God. So they listened to the word of God. You want to know God's will? Get into his word. You want to know his heart, his mind? Get into his word. Then, for the next three hours, they praised and they worshipped. You see, once again, the word of God, simply read, produced this in their hearts. So, the word of God mixed with prayer, praise, petition, supplication, confession, that is what they're doing. That's what they started doing. 24 days later, they're still doing it. I want to read something to you by... Um, H.A. Ironside. Uh, he's a great old dead guy, and uh, I'm starting things on Friday that I call the Dead Pastor Society, and for those who will be coming to that, you'll learn about H.A. Ironside. He lived here in the Los Angeles area years ago. He was the pastor of Moody Church in Chicago for a number of years. This is what he said. One who gives himself preeminently to the word, neglecting prayer, will become heady and doctrinal, liking to quarrel, and be occupied with theoretical Christianity to the hurt of his soul and the irritation of his brethren. I know that you know people like that. They love to argue. There's not a whole lot of prayer in their lives, but they just have all the heady theological stuff. On the other hand, he continues, he who gives himself much to prayer while neglecting the word is likely to become exceedingly introspective and mystical. But he who reads the word reverently and humbly, seeking to know the will of God, then gives himself to prayer, confessing and judging what the scriptures have condemned in his ways, words and thoughts, will have his soul drawn out in worship also, and thus grow both in grace and knowledge, becoming a well-rounded follower of Christ. So now we won't read it again. But we'll consider this the longest prayer in the Bible. Here's another footnote. We think that it was Ezra who prayed this prayer publicly. We don't know for sure, but it does sound a lot like what we read about that he prayed in Ezra, the book of Ezra, and also the Septuagint version of the Bible. That's the Old Testament in the Greek translation. Adds the words, and Ezra said, and then the prayer. So you put those two together, probably Ezra said it. Let's look at the prayer of penitence. And the first section, verses 1 through 6, is something that appears in, in um, all Jewish liturgy on a daily basis. It is uh, in the daily morning prayers that is recited or read uh, by the Jews even to this day. Now, this chapter is not unlike a lot of other chapters that I'm just going to throw out to you that you have read. Acts chapter 7 sounds very similar to this. As Stephen stands before the Jewish elders, the Sanhedrin, and begins with Abraham and the call out of Ur of the Chaldees into the land, goes on to Moses, tells the history of the Jewish nation. It's not unlike Psalm 105, where the psalmist, in a poetic fashion, recounts the history of the Jews. It's not unlike Psalm 136, where uh, a factoid of Jewish history is given, and then the response is, for his mercy endures forever. And then another snippet of historical information, for his mercy endures forever. So the Jews did this a lot, and here's why. They loved their own history. They loved to recount all of the things God had done for them. And so they would write about and pray through and think through their own history. Now, this prayer that we consider reaches four directions. There's a look up. There's a look back. There's a look at. And there's a look ahead. 
That's how the prayer is structured. Or if you prefer, there is adoration. That's the look up. Uh, There is um, retrospection and petition. That's the look back. There is present petition. That's the look at. And then there is a prayer for direction or submission in the future. Uh, Look at verse 5 where he says, Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them. You have preserved them all. The host of heaven worships you. A select group of Levites stands on the platform and they recognize God. They begin their prayer by recognizing they're talking to someone very unique, very singular, i.e., the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, the founder of the Jewish nation. And uh, before they even talk about what they're going to promise God, which is at the very end of the chapter, into chapter 10, before they even start confessing their sins, which they do a lot in this chapter, they acknowledge how great God is. And this is something I notice in virtually all Bible prayers. It was typical among the Jewish prayers to begin by acknowledging God. You'll hear, if you ever go to a Passover or a Sabbath meal, this Baruch atah Adonai Elohenu Melech HaOlam. Blessed art thou, Lord God, the King of the universe. That's how they start. There is this idea that before we jump in and grab God and say, give me, I need, I must have, you must do, there's a pause of recognition, of humility, of adoration, this look up, where we recognize who we're talking to. And we render him respect, adoration. He deserves it because he is who he is. He is God, and he deserves this kind of adoration. For some people, prayer is like a big aspirin. They come when it hurts. God, it hurts, and their prayer life is like magical at those times. Or prayer is sort of like an emergency room. They come when they're dying, you know, last minute, last hope, last straw. For other people... um, Prayer is different. God is sort of seen as um, room service in a first-class hotel. He's the bellhop. I claim, I command in Jesus' name, hallelujah. And they start blabbing it and grabbing it, naming it and claiming it, as if God is, okay, hop to. I think, I know, as I read my Bible, The best way to begin prayer is to recognize who I'm speaking to, not my buddy, not the great buddy boy in the sky, the Lord God who deserves my adoration and my humble worship and praise. That's how these prayers begin. Jeremiah did it. In fact, Jeremiah did it because when you start praying like this, it changes your perspective. You see, adoration forces your eyesight off of the downward look or even off of the horizon and forces you to go past your feelings, past your emotion, past what's going on around you, and it forces you up above the horizon where you're seeing more than you've ever seen before. Instead of, this is so horrible, my life, you God, you're amazing. You've created the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything that is in them. Nothing's too hard for you. It changes my perspective. This is what Jeremiah said. Oh, sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. If I look at this crowd in my view, it fills up a frame for me that's quite large. You collectively are much larger than an object of this size. Oh, this is about six by eight at the max. But this object, though much smaller than all of you, has the capacity to blind my view 
of what is greater in size than this. How? By perspective. If I put this Bible way out to where you are, well, then the perspective is according to the distance. But if I go like this, okay, now I can't see you. Uh, I know you're there because I just heard a laugh, but I, I can't see you because I see something that's much closer. It's this. What we do in our daily lives is we take our problems. God is much bigger. But we go like this. And then all we see is that stuff. And what we do in adoration is simply take our problem and throw it back to how big God is. And our problem looks so minuscule as we recognize God is the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the founder. And it gives me a perspective adjustment. And that's what this prayer is all about. Let's look at the second look. And that is not a look up, but now it's a look back. And we touch on the history of the Jewish nation now as they confess. This is the longest section of the prayer. It reviews the history of Israel and God together. And did you pick up on this when we were reading together? That there's a frequent mention of how much Israel vacillated and oscillated and how steady and faithful God was. There's that constant uh, reminder in the prayer. That recognition is, we've been faithless, but you've been faithful. And when you've been faithful and we've been faithless, we saw that. And so we repented. We came back to you to be faithful because you're so faithful. But then we have wandering hearts. So we just kind of went astray again. And uh, you didn't boot us out for good. You kept drawing us back to your faithfulness. And we were there. But then we just sort of went over there. There's that constant reminder of that. That's sort of the theme of this looking back, this confession. Now, I want you to just notice something before we go to the next one. There's a beautiful and logical and theological progression of this prayer. In fact, you could begin this prayer and end this prayer with the entire history of the Jews from Genesis to Second Chronicles, which is the end of the Jewish nation before the captivity. Uh, look at verse 7 and 8, and that's the book of Genesis. He mentions Abram, changes his name to Abraham, getting into the land of the Canaanites that occupies the general portion of the book of Genesis. Then verses 9 down to verse 12 is the book of Exodus. They're praising God for the redemption through the Red Sea and how God showed himself strong as he followed them or actually led them with the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. Verse 13 down to verse 18 is the book of Exodus and Leviticus, the laws the statutes, uh, the leading of God, the fathers in the wilderness who hardened their hearts. Verse 19 down to verse 25, uh, or excuse me, down to verse 21 is uh, the book of Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Those events are highlighted in those verses. Verse 22 is the book of Joshua. They settled part of the land east of the Jordan River, and they occupied the land west of the Jordan River, the land of the Canaanites. They took possession of the cities. Uh, verse 27 and all the way down to verse 29 is the book of Judges, how they got into the sin cycle. By the way, you know that sin cycle, how they um, started wandering away from God. God let them be oppressed by their enemies. In their oppression, they cried out, and so God sent them deliverer. And then... They wandered away from God again. God sent them into the hands of their enemies. They cried out to God, and God sent them a deliverer. And that's a cycle that goes all the way throughout the book of Judges. And that's mentioned or shown in verse 27 through 29. Then verse 30 and 31 is sort of collectively a summary of the books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. So you have this progression as they look backwards. From Genesis all the way to Second Chronicles, the history of the Jews. Here's a point to be made. Reviewing your own history is insightful, healthy, and refreshing. It's very therapeutic to stop and pause all the way the Lord has led you up to this day. You may remember in Deuteronomy chapter 8, it was a commandment. And you shall remember 
all the way the Lord thy God led thee in the wilderness. I don't know if you keep a journal. But if you do, you know what I'm talking about. When you look back a year or two or five or ten or twenty and you look at what is written, you go, oh, I, I remember that. Uh-huh. Oh, I remember that day vividly now. And it's a record. It's a journal. It's a, it's a, 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 a written testimony of your voyage as a believer. And it's, it's a healthy, wonderful thing to do, to keep a journal. Or find a friend who's known you a long time and talk about how good God has been and recall some of those past events from your history. Well, this chapter is more akin to remembering like the church of um, Ephesus was told to remember when God said, remember from where you have fallen, repent and do your first works or else I will remove the lampstand from out of its place. It's that kind of remembrance. It's the record of God's faithfulness and a record of man's faithlessness. You know, there's a law in the physical world, laws of thermodynamics. There's several laws that are written. The one most Christians are familiar with because of the whole evolution creation debate is the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy, which says that uh, over time in a closed system, energy is lost, heat is lost, and that things tend toward not order but decay, chaos. And that's just the law of entropy, that over time, things will wear out, things will decay, things will become chaotic. There is the same principle spiritually. There's the same principle socially. But on a spiritual level, there is entropy. You might remember, like we were talking about at the beginning of this study, when you first came to Christ, your heart was burning. It was on fire. You couldn't wait to grab that Bible in the morning, get your hands on it, get your nose in it, read it. Couldn't wait to come to church and sing and worship. And it's like, oh, this is great. But then time wears on. You've been a Christian a long time. You become a professional Christian. <laughs> Carry a Bible, same way, maybe not like this, but like this. Not everybody can see it. Notice it sort of blends in very nicely. It goes with my apparel. Oh, yes, you love the Lord, but you don't want to be too fanatic. That's for the younger group of Christians. But what happens is you find yourself experiencing entropy. It's not the same passion that you had for the Lord. The fire is not tended. There's a cooling. There's a loss of heat. There's a decay. There's a retired couple I heard about. True story. I've um, read it in this um, one journal, and an uh, insurance company confirmed it. couple saved up, spent all their money on a motorhome. They were going to retire and enjoy themselves. They bought the motorhome, going up the coast of California. Loved it, especially because it had cruise control on it. This guy just thought it was the coolest thing. Put it on cruise control, up the coast, Cool. After a few hours, he got tired and wanted his wife to drive. She said, I'd love to. She put it on cruise control. They went down the road for about an hour. And then she decided, while she's at the wheel, to get up and use the restroom. And she did. She thought cruise control was the same thing as automatic pilot. She had misunderstood exactly what that feature was in that motorhome. And... That's what is on the report, the California Highway Patrol accident report. They totaled it. They're fine. They walked away from it. But their motorhome was trashed because she put it on automatic pilot on cruise control. If you try to live the Christian life on automatic pilot on cruise control, you're headed for a wreck. There is that entropy. It, your, your spiritual life must be continually tended. And... Here they are, hearing the word of God after several weeks, and they're realizing that. Wow, here's the standard. We've heard it. We've read it. It's not what we're living. And they're looking back, and they're realizing that. Um, look at verse 32 through 37. It's, uh, they're looking at their present condition. Here's their petition. Here's their prayer. Now, therefore... Now we're applying it. Now, therefore, our God, the great, 
the mighty and awesome God who keeps covenant and mercy. Do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and in all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. However, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. Neither our kings nor our princes, our priests nor our fathers have kept your law, nor heeded your commandments and your testimony, with which you testified against them. For they have not served you in their kingdom or in the many good things that you have given them or in the large and rich land which you set before them. Nor did they turn from their wicked works. Here we are. Servants today and the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty. Here we are servants in it and it yields much increase to the kings you have set over us because of our sins and they have dominion over our bodies, our cattle at their pleasure. And we are in great distress. They're turning from the past. They're turning to the present and they're making a present petition. Lord. Look at us. We're slaves. High taxes, foreign domination. We're still controlled by outsiders. We're paying them hefty sums of money to keep this place going. But Lord, we don't want to walk into the future apart from walking with you. Have pity on us, Lord. Have mercy on us, God. We want to be partners with you once again. That's the idea of this present prayer. Lord, we identify with you. And Ezra, in praying this, is lamenting. Look at where we're at. Have pity on us. You ever uh, seen pigeons walk? Do you notice that they do it kind of weird? Do you notice how their head goes back and forth like this? You notice that? Do you know why? You know what they're doing? A pigeon cannot focus while it's moving. With its eyes. So it has to have its head completely stationary in one place, stopped between steps in order to adjust the focus to see. So when a pigeon walks, it's head forward, stop, head back, stop, head forward, stop, head back, stop. With each step, forward, back, forward, back. And it's focusing so it can see where it stops, looks, stops, looks. That's the way the eyes work. Very different from ours. In our spiritual life, It's not always easy to see where we're at while we're moving. Things move by so fast. It's important to stop and look and take inventory, maybe take another step and really find out where we're walking, where we're going, so we can get a good purview, a good idea of what's ahead of us. And so um, Ezra's saying, Lord, we've stopped. We've looked around, and we want to walk as partners, joint partners with you in the future. We want to walk in step with your spirit. Fourth and finally, it's a look ahead. And that's the last verse. Verse 38 is the look of head, uh, the look of head, the look ahead. I got caught on that pigeon thing. (laughs) They're looking into their future. And this is a prayer of submission. And listen to it. It actually is an introductory verse to the next chapter. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and we write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. Now, that's an introductory verse because the next chapter will give a list of the people making the covenant and spell out the terms of the contract. Here's the point. As their prayer reaches up, reaches back, looks at something in the present, and finally looks ahead, you might say their prayer is not letting any of the threads dangle. They want to sew up every little thread, every loose end. They want to make sure that they're just not moved emotionally. Oh, we're not keeping God's laws. Oh, we've sinned. And oh, Lord, we need your help. Lord, we're going to let this event, this Scripture that has so moved us emotionally to tears and mourning and repentance and revival. We're going to let this move us 
to a life change. We stand before you and publicly we make a contract, a covenant, a commitment. Sort of like a wedding. Sort of like last week where this couple was called up and stood up here and they said vows, not, I promise to have you hold you from this day forward for better or for worse. They did it publicly. They said, I will publicly. This covenant is made publicly. There is a common mistake that people, even Christians make. The common mistake is between remorse and repentance. They think if they're remorseful, that's repentance. Oh, no, it's not. I've been to a lot of different prisons before. And I've met a lot of criminals who are remorseful, but not repentant. There is a difference between remorse and repentance. Remorse is feeling really bad about what you've done or the fact that you got caught for what you've done. Um, Repentance is a determination by God's help to turn from it and to change. Big difference between remorse and repentance. One is a feeling, the other is a change. True story. A man wrote the IRS a letter claiming that he hadn't got much sleep since 1970 because he was cheating on his income tax during that year. And uh, he said, I haven't slept much lately. He sent the letter with five $100 bills inside the letter. And he said, I owe you money. I haven't been able to sleep. Here's $500. And then it closed by saying, if I still can't sleep after this, I'll send you the rest. Well, he felt very remorseful for what he had done, but not enough to give the rest. There wasn't really a change there. We all feel bad about certain things we've done, but where's the rest? This is true repentance. Tonight, what I'm going to ask us to do is end a little bit early, about five minutes early, and to put these principles into practice, just like we stood and we read this together. Uh, We used to, and we do from time to time, break up in groups And we're going to follow these principles. Now, let me just give you a disclaimer. Maybe you've never prayed publicly before. Maybe you think, I can't wait to pray publicly. I love it. Um, If you don't feel like you want to do this, you can just listen to everybody else and just say amen at the end of the prayer. No pressure. But it's a wonderful, healthy exercise. You don't have to confess your deep, dark secrets. In fact, we don't want to know your deep, dark secrets. You know, you take a bath in private, not in public. But you may want to confess something before your brothers and sisters to the Lord that's been on your heart. And you may want to follow something of petition, asking the Lord now, I want to walk with you, Lord, from this day forward. You want to begin by adoration, but just take a few moments in adoration, in worship, in confession. And then finally, together as a group, somebody close it off by saying, Lord, by your grace, by your help, we make a covenant with you. We love you. We know you love us. We follow you. We want to go for it. So let's uh, let's do that. Let's just break up in little groups for a few minutes, and then I'll close this off all together uh, in prayer.